For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we, we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. I'm recording this very last minute on the final day of London Fashion Week and I need to rush off to the airport. One of this week's guests, Bethany Williams, has also had some last-minute preparations to juggle. One week ago, it was announced that she is the 2019 recipient of the second Queen Elizabeth II Award for British Design. That was a mouthful. The first one was last year, and it was awarded to Richard Quinn. Bethany will be presented with the award today by the Duchess of Cornwall on behalf of the Queen for her work in sustainability and community engagement. This afternoon, she will present a show pulled together in just a few days. Bethany is a menswear designer, so she normally shows in January at London Fashion Week Men's. After this, she's due in Milan for Vogue Green Talent, so it's non-stop. At a party the other day, she told me that she's cast activists as models to make the most of this moment, and they include Adua, the Vogue Covergirl favourite behind the Girls Talk platform, and the Rwandan designer Cedric Mizero, who is part of the International Fashion Showcase this week. I'll share on social media pictures of some of the other changemakers involved. But isn't it lovely that I interviewed Bethany before Christmas for this episode, which was always scheduled for this week to celebrate young London talent, but it couldn't be timelier. I'm absolutely delighted for Bethany, who is an awesome individual, and I think you're going to love hearing from her. Fashion schools everywhere are full of eco-warriors and bright, brilliant kids who are determined to do fashion differently. Now, I would argue that London is a leader, maybe the leader, maybe I'm biased, but it's definitely known for its fashion creativity. London is the capital that produces the most vibrant student shows and emerging designers. I recorded this episode with three young London-based ones to watch, and I asked them, why do they care about sustainability and how do they apply it to their work? As well as Bethany, you're going to hear from Matthew Needham, a guy who absolutely knows that the fashion world is watching London and students and new designers and is intent on using that power to shake things up and question the current system. And last but absolutely not least, you're going to hear from my friend Patrick McDowell, who started his fashion career at the tender age of 13, can you believe it, because his mum wouldn't buy him a new school bag, so he made one himself out of upcycled materials. And then he started selling them and he had a bag business. In fact, he was so good at it that at 16, he turned up on the reality TV show Young Apprentice. (laughs) Go, Patrick. If you enjoy this episode, hop back to series two and revisit the episode on emerging designers from Milan Fashion Week with Vogue Italia's Sara Mino. And also, go buy the February issue of Vogue Italia, which is green talent themed. I was delighted to contribute a piece to this issue about how designers are approaching climate activism. 
And let me know who you'd like to hear from when I make an Aussie-themed emerging talent episode. Again, you can find me on social media. And while you're on your phone, if you're listening to this in iTunes, don't forget to hit subscribe. And please consider leaving me a rating or review. It really helps others find us. But now, let's start with Bethany. Hello, Bethany Williams. I'm so happy that we're recording this podcast in London. We're actually in your house. Yeah. Yeah. Where you are hard at work unpicking old dead stock denim. Yep, I am. Yeah, really fun Sunday activities. But um, yeah, no, it's time consuming, but I love it. But why are you doing it? So I'm doing it for a collaboration with Vogue Italia and Ukes. So it's a dead stock that I'm like unpicking and then remaking into a three pieces to be exhibited in February. And then it's the same story as my new collection. So we're printing them next week. So I'm just like, need to get done by Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for fitting me in. Okay, yeah, let's no. just talk about the concept behind your new collection then. And also, yeah. could you share a little bit about the printing? Yeah, I'm doing a collaboration with Adelaide House. So usually every collection I'll work with a charity. And then I also work with like social manufacturing um, projects at the same time. And then with the sales of the collection, I donate 20% to the charity that I'm working alongside. So yeah, I chose to work with Adelaide House in Liverpool because they're one of six in the whole of the UK um, charities that provide a safe space for women only. There's lots of organisations, you know, like if you're fleeing domestic violence that, you know, you can have emergency housing, but points of like actual going to a shelter if you didn't have a phone, you know, there's not very many in the UK. And where I'm from in the Isle of Man, there isn't one. So a lot of the women from the Isle of Man will go to the one in Liverpool and there's none in Wales. So it's like, it's a charity that support women coming out of prison or women homeless or domestic violence situations. What you're doing is highly creative and unexpected and I loved it. So you're collaborating <laughs> with an illustrator. Yeah, yeah. So Georgia, she's um, an illustrator. So she's an art director and works in publishing and she works on children's books. But we went up to Adelaide House and worked with the women and did like a drawing workshop and just like heard their stories. And then Georgia like took words of inspiration and then also illustrated the women. And that's become the print story and then at the same time, we were like walking around Liverpool and trying to get a feel. And she did these like landscape paintings that are becoming like the print story. And then we're printing them on like recycled tenting to make like outerwear jackets. On so, tenting, yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah, so it's we're working with, um, it's a charity that take tents from festivals that haven't been used, that are damaged and can't be resold. Okay, I want to talk about your purpose. Mm. I love that you're combining sustainability with a social purpose which I want to say it's not that common I think it might be true I feel Mm. like people either pursue one or the other but I love the way that you phrase this and you use the term social capital and talk about using social capital combined with intellectual and labor intensive skills in order to create a profit and to feed it back into community I've always worked with shelters or with different like charitable projects and then I was doing like fine art at university when you say you've always worked you mean you volunteered yeah yeah as a kid yeah so it's always kind of been like a part of me and my mum's like work she's a pattern cutter but also works for a charity I think my mum's been a massive influence on that for me I do think it's about like merging the environment and people to like make a change I don't think you can do one without the other so I think that's really influential to my to my practice but I didn't actually want to do 
fashion. I read that about you because you thought you'd be adding to the waste. Yeah, yeah. I just didn't really want to engage with it, and I didn't like the idea of it, and like the bougie, maybe the bouginess of it. I was just a bit like, ah, what is that word? I don't know. You know, like I don't know. It just seemed a bit like overwhelming and you know like I don't know but then I love textiles and I love clothes and you know I love making but I love taking something that's discarded and turning it into something that's beautiful so I think and I kind of love also working with the social projects and seeing how much they can actually help change people's lives and I feel like through fashion we do have the ability to change lives well we do i mean Mm. it's also it's very accessible it's immediately clear isn't it because it's visual communication and because everybody wears clothes it's tactile you can work with your hands i mean there's lots of reasons why fashion is appealing to a broad lot of people i guess one of the things that's interesting around these new conversations around sustainability and younger generation designers yeah is that there is very few of you that i meet who are like oh, I don't care about social issues or I don't care about the environment. Of course you have to. Yeah, yeah, I think, like, as a younger generation, you know, like, we're the last people that can actually make the difference. I wanted to ask you why menswear? Ah, I think I wear, like, a lot of men's clothing. I prefer the shapes. I just think it's more interesting. And Do you? Yeah, I just, I just really prefer wearing men's clothing. Because I think, like, I do menswear, but I do... A lot of my customers are women, and then a lot of the customers for the stores are women as well. So I feel like it's kind of men's sizing, but it's, it's yeah. unisex. Yeah. So I've had lots of people asking me to do, like, extra small for women, so it's the same shape, but it's smaller, because everything's quite big and oversized. <laughs> yeah. And then the last collection, I was with uh, the Quaker Mobile Library in London, so that provides books for people without a fixed address because if you don't have a fixed address you can't use the library service in the UK so with that project for the show we actually did it in a Charing Cross public library and then I casted girls and boys because I kind of felt like it was relevant to the customers as well like it like girls and boys well that's happening more and more because I think the lines are blurring Talking of books, one of the most delightful things I ever, ever heard was mm. that you worked with book waste from Hachette. Yeah. Get out. Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, as a writer, I never even considered book waste. I've considered worrying about what sort of paper books are printed on. Yeah. But I haven't considered book waste. But of course, because they remain, when they're remainders, they destroy them. Yeah, so it was the project for the mobile library. So I've always wanted to work with them for a really long time. And I really believe in like people having access to reading. And I've kind of thought it was so crazy that you can't, if you don't have a dress, you can't use the public library. Yeah, I really think it's such a big problem. So the fact that they supply books to people that are within shelters in central London and drive and anyone can access it, anyone can lend. I just thought, you know, like, it's a really great project and a really great cause and I wanted to try and help and support them in some way. So, yeah, so I kind of got in touch with Hachette and then they really loved the project. So they did book donations to um, the mobile libraries whenever they need the books. I mean, it's like dead stock books, but we don't use that phrase. But, I mean, it's the same thing. Yeah, and then we went up to their factory that they use called Clays, which is in Suffolk. And they produce three million books a week. So, <gasps> yeah. So Gosh, they, it's a lot. Yeah, so many. But it was crazy because when we were in the factory, there was just like books flying like, everywhere. I've never been in a factory that big. Not really. Yeah, it was insane. But it's like, yeah, the 
that oh god all i can think is as an author it's horrible to think of how many books there are out there yeah i think you know books and knowledge and it is lovely to have it's awful and wonderful no it's awful i'm revealing my true self which is my god how's anyone going to care about my book when there are so many no (laughs) so then what did you do with the waste paper so the waste paper we received so we received insides of books like so that where the actual the text is covers and then we also had this like plastic in sampa that's used to when they're because del- they have a graphic design department and when they their paper gets delivered it's all wrapped in this plastic so we made that all into three different fabrics so in so the San Patriano is this community that I work with in Italy so it's a drug rehabilitation center and it's like 72% success rate of rehabilitation. Wow. And I think it's the highest in the world. But it, it's a really long program. It's three years, but it's free for people and their families wow. to go to go to it. And it's all centered around craft and like how craft is used, can be used as a tool to heal. And at the same time, you know, you can go back to university, to school, um, but you are in one craft department and you learn that skill. And that's what you do is your, your daily job. And then there's like sports and everything else around it. But yes, I work with the handwoven textile department. How did you find them? So I actually did a project with London College of Fashion uh, and, and the Xenia Foundation with Anna oh, yeah. Xenia. So we did this whole project with the first year students. Brilliant. And I, yeah. And then I designed textiles from waste and then... I worked alongside the students and they designed um, six coats that we selected and it was all to do with like so society and the environment so that was a kind of like theme brilliant and then um, we exhibited the coats that LCF did uh, at the State of Fashion exhibition in Arnhem ah yes yeah so so what exactly did you do with this paper how did you treat it yeah so we they have a cutter like a guillotine so it was all cut into strips and then it was woven, handwoven with these yarns that are don- to all mills across Italy will donate yarns to San Patriano. So they're like yarns that don't go into production and they're not going to use for production. So it's like pre-production waste. So then we use that as the, so there's like the the weft. Yeah, yeah, and warp and warp. weft. Yeah, so we use that. And then the waxed warp. it, right? Yeah, and then it's sent to Tuscany and waxed. Let's talk about Breadline. Ah, Another okay. fantastic yeah. collaborative <laughs> innovation moment. Yeah, so my, for my MA project. So I kind of knew what I wanted to do before I got on the MA. So I kind of had the project. Um, so it was working with the Vauxhall Food Bank and Tesco. Um, but it was hard because I didn't have any contacts for Tesco's at that time. I was just like volunteering with the Vauxhall Food Bank and told them the project that I wanted to do and they're really supportive and happy to do it it's lovely when yeah. people just say I can see this let's do it yeah I feel like there's so many amazing people in organizations that really are supportive so when you have that support it feels like you can kind of do any anything yeah. you know, anything is possible and then I got in touch with someone at Tesco's that was like really supportive and then we kind of just did and said what yeah, they were just like, oh, yeah, we'd love to. No, like- but what did you say? Oh, what did yeah. I say? What was your I, plan? Yeah, my plan. Well, yeah, I wanted to do, because um, at the food bank, it's really actually hard to get food from the food bank. So um, at the time, David Cameron was saying the increase in the food bank use, which I think was like 400% in a couple of years and he was saying it's because people were taking advantage of food banks where I was like trying to make a point 
with the whole project that the people that were coming in to use the food bank are mums, nurses, that it's not just people that are trying to take advantage of the system. And I'm just shaking my head. Yeah, just, and, and I was like, also, it's, it's I hate that line. It's just yeah. such rubbish. For That's not how, why anyone does it. There might no. be a handful of people who would do that, but obviously any of these services cater to a need and because there are holes in our society that people fall through and no yeah. safety nets, for God's sake. Yeah, so, so also, I didn't realise, but also to gain access to the food bank, you have to have a voucher and you can only get the voucher from the job centre, a social worker or a doctor and you can only get one voucher. We can have three vouchers in six months so you can only really have one voucher every two months and it's for three days of emergency food. You know, I was just really gobsmacked that, you know, how do you take advantage of that situation that it's it's really difficult and then at the same time it's non-perishable food so I wanted to kind of help and support with something fresh so that's why I was went to Tesco's and said like I'd like to do fresh fruit and veg and exchange that for waste garments like if someone had like an old jumper or an old pair of jeans and they could come in and get a whole fresh fruit and veg parcel in exchange and then I took the waste and turned that into the collection. You got lots of attention for it. It was good publicity for an idea, right? Yeah, yeah. For no, a social cause, for yeah. something political beyond just beautiful clothes. Yeah, I think it was... It was. It's hard because obviously when you're trying to do something good, you do have like a lot of support, but then you do have people saying like, well, why aren't you doing that? Or why aren't you doing that? You know, because it's so hard to try and do everything. So I feel like it's hard when you're trying to do something good because people will. What keeps you going? I think when I'm working with the different social manufacturing projects and seeing what a difference it does cause for the people that are involved. And like, especially with San Patriano, when I go back, because I go back to do the fabrics for each collection. So I'll go back and you see the, the girls like evolving and changing. And it's like a really beautiful process. Mm. And I think like, also with the charities trying to find a way to try and support them in some way. I feel like, you know, like for Adelaide Housewood trying to raise enough money to support one girl for six months. So, because they've lost one of their, their beds, they've lost some funding. And then I don't know even through it if people don't know about these kind of subjects. I think it's quite nice to bring these subjects to people in a different industry you know so I think yeah if I wasn't going to be a fashion designer I'd probably be a social worker. (laughs) Next up Matthew Needham. He is currently doing his MA at St Martin's and also teaches undergrads. Now Matthew's designs are I reckon the word is apocalyptic. He turns trash and wait till you hear where he finds it in very weird places into brilliant surprising thought-provoking clothes They're also strangely beautiful, but it's all about making a massive political statement. And that is that we're wrecking nature and it's not on. I'm here with Matthew Needham, designer, upcycler, waste warrior. Where are we, Matthew? (laughs) We are in the basement of Bernardo's in Brixton. Why? Because it's a very quiet place here. Yeah, good to record, but that's not why. You've got this connection. Yeah, so working through with Fashion Revolution, one of the first disco make projects we did was with Bernardo's. And just for listeners who aren't aware, we'll share some links in the show notes, but Disco Make, great idea. What yeah, is it? Disco Make. So this was Ursula's concept. Uh, the first one we did last December with Greenpeace. And it's th- an initiative whereby 
people can come to this event and upcycle rag and take part in activities such as floor drobe stylist it's and really take fun. away it's it's really great to music and you know have a drink and a socialize and meet people you never met before it's obviously got Ursula's imprint all over it but i love it because <laughs> it's it's educational in inverted commas if you like like you come away knowing yeah. stuff but you have fun no, definitely. I think every disco mate, there's been about five now, I think. Every disco mate we've done has had a different audience, like some for art students. We did one at Port Elliot in the summer, which is much more family orientated. So yeah, it's been great. It's sort of, it's for everyone, you know. And it flips people thinking about what discarded, unwanted clothing can be and mean. No, definitely. Definitely. How do you do that in your work? Well, my work is all upcycled and it's primarily a combination of dead stock from fashion houses in France and stuff from the street. I mean, I love like bits of metal and random things that I find on the street, things that don't really look like anything. Like you kind of can't really explain where they're from or their origins. That's what I find quite cool. I think one of the most weirdest things that people find strange that I made something from was um, roofing asphalt. It is weird. Yeah, really weird. What did you make it into? uh, It was like a textile and a pair of trousers or like um, wood sacks what else to make it from Tyvek like circus tents and stuff Tyvek's like the material that you know, like painters overalls things like that so there are like fabric elements but I much prefer something that looks like it's had a history a I love the it so a lot of the things that I found in my research and on my journeys to school every day I would incorporate into the work so the things I found kind of informed the design and even through the to the twirls, like the twirls were scraped from the floors of the studio in school, and I could listen to the seams, or I can you know use the pieces and flatten and them out if I want to. Listen to the seams. Listen to the seams exactly. So, what do you mean? I mean, it's just an element of the storytelling, isn't it? So yeah. it's like it's that conversation of luxury for me and value, because for me, if I can tell you where something's from, and I can say that's from New York, that's from Brooklyn, this is from something I found in the sea in Norway, you know. And <laughs> what I've, did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like plastic and bits and bobs and stuff that were all like embroidered and I basically I worked um in a Paris fashion house where I was working on textiles and sort of couture techniques as an intern as an intern yeah so this was about two and a half three years ago and um learned a lot there it was an amazing experience and then coming back I mean the reason that I incorporate so much of this into my work and how I feel like this is now my calling is because of the amount of waste that I saw being produced there even at that level Honestly, it was just crazy. I think that many listeners, even regular listeners who know that we bang on about waste every single week on this podcast, because that's kind of like <laughs> what we're about. But I think that many people still labour under the misapprehension that it's fast fashion only that produces uncommon amounts of waste, or mm-hmm. it's us, it's consumers just turfing stuff out. But it's actually endemic through every element of the, I'm going to say, triangle. Like So the top luxury, luxury, down to the cheap tube. Yeah. I think what people don't realise, especially everyday consumers, is that every brand in the world has had something to do with incineration in the past. For example, like the um, Transparency Index with Fashion Revolution, like, you know, understanding what brands are doing behind closed doors and things. There's so many things, especially in the design part. In France, when I was working there in Paris, the amount of thoughtlessness that went into the process of design just purely because of fast pace was ridiculous so it's not that people are willfully wasteful it's just that they haven't challenged the systems or thought through what might be a better way yeah i mean it's it's out of pressure you know we've created this pressure for ourselves of like nine shows a year and it's honestly ridiculous like fashion is just 
it goes around in circles and we've created this sort of pattern for ourselves where we create this pressure which means we have to feel like we have to overproduce things in order to you know fulfill demands etc and overproduce garments like 150 billion garments a year produced did you feel the pressure even as an intern when you're working in that fast paced environment yeah definitely but I was there challenging these things like I spoke to the sustainability managers and went to the heads of things and did you no definitely I met some really amazing people I mean it seems to be like a lot of the people in those positions and there's more and more positions coming up in every fashion house to do with sustainability and sustainability teams they don't really have much power when it comes to companies who have sold things off or they have licensing and it's more about the packaging or the lighting in the store that they can easily change. I know. We you know? always hear that, oh, yes, we're very sustainable because we've switched over to green light bulbs or to energy-saving yeah. light bulbs. It's like, okay. <laughs> I feel like sustainability as a word in the fashion industry has lost its original meaning. Did that make you really want to take a totally different approach with your work or had you already decided that that was going to be your... To be honest, it wasn't necessarily that. It was more... It was just like I needed to do something. Like there's no way that I could just see that and then just ignore it and go into a final collection at university because we intern at St. Martin's. We have the choice to intern before our final year. So it was after my second year of university. When you say see that, are you saying see the amount of textile waste, for example? Yeah, I mean, I saw them housing fabrics and leathers and stuff that they just had to incinerate because they don't have space to house all these materials because you have, for example, if you make leather, you have to book it 10 weeks in advance to colour it and everything from the tanneries and then if you decide you don't want yellow you want green the day before the show or a week before the show then all the yellow leather goes but don't they go know? back and think well I've got all this extra I should design with that in mind no <laughs> no but I mean you have so much power in design decisions because you can literally change a whole pattern within the trickle of the fashion industry you know they, just yeah. by it deciding where a button goes well they reckon that up to 80 percent of a garment's impact on the environment is decided in the, the design, design stage, stage. Yeah, i mean i say they reckon because i'm not sure who yeah just reckons. but we do <laughs> the gods the sustainability. Gods. so with your practice what's your vision for what you're trying to achieve if i'm honest being a young designer in london we literally have the platform and the opportunity we don't have any business ties or marketing schemes or any of that stuff we have platforms at these universities in london where people look and we influence the world you know like people look at our revolutionary visions and stuff and we have the opportunity so when i came back to do my graduate collection for my bachelor at st martin's at St. st martin's it was almost like i had to do it you know it was like a necessity i had to include it but for me it's just part of the storytelling and it's just an extension of my work anyway you know i really love process i think the process is the most important part and for me adding that creativity and using it human initiative which i think we've lost through the search for ease and convenience in today's society through you know our own evolution and curation of the world and i feel that to add this value back into these you know this trash that people literally don't have any materialistic value towards but you see value in it even if it's something you find lying in the street yeah 100% because if I I find it hilarious and it's that satire humour that at that time was the comment because it was talking about you know I can spend hours and hours embroidering this piece of roofing and put it on a pair of trousers you know and mix it with the fabric from a Paris fashion house that for me is luxury and it's a story and it's hilarious at the same time but it's just a a very soft way of commenting about how the fashion industry is curated and you know the hierarchy the steps 
you've had some brilliant reactions in terms of positive feedback and excitement about your work. I found you through Instagram, although I think maybe Ursula told me now. But I remember yeah. looking at your Instagram going, this is phenomenal because it's just so... And you say humour, you so it much. is humorous. It's also just really full on in a way that makes you go, what What did he use? What yeah. is it? What? I mean, my collection, that collection was called Man and His Man-Made Future. I mean, man specifically, because I think that... Yeah. But... what. I mean, rather than saying humankind, you know, it's mankind, purely because these men in power, these misogynistic men throughout history. My favourite thing I like to say every episode, I'm always saying, uh, eight men control the world, half the world. Literally, it's ridiculous. But I think in fashion, we have so much influence, and especially as students. I mean, we influence these designer houses in Paris. Who's loved it? So Sarah Moa included you in a piece that she wrote for ID about future fashion designers. Yeah, it's for the Earthwise issue in summer. Yeah. So, I mean, I cried when I read that. I mean, I love Sarah so much and she's really helped me a lot and she still does. And um, yeah, that piece was so amazing because I think when I graduated, there wasn't people talking about it or interested in it compared to now. You know, I think in the last year and a half, it has literally escalated. It's crazy how many people are interested in upcycling or they know about if you want to use the word sustainability, they know about the sort of area within fashion. And when that issue came out, to actually see something printed that's so influential, you know, ID magazine is literally the voice of youth in Britain and it has been for so long. Where does this come from in you talking of youth? What kind of kid were you? And were you conscious of the environment (laughs) when you were a nipper? Or is it something that you kind of came to when you were a student? I mean, my mum's Czech, my dad's English, and I grew up in Leicestershire. Uh, My dad's a carpenter and... I've always been conscious of the environment, but I think growing up in England, we've curated a lot. So it's not really nature. Like even the fields oh, in mid, in the Midlands, you know, like in the Midlands is just fields and, and roads and highways, you know, it's... Since I've been thinking in this way, particularly in yeah. the last year or so, um, I researched all this stuff around the Anthropocene and also just man's taking over of nature and the kind of tipping point we've reached in the technosphere and yeah. the fact that it's so hard to find wild places anymore and those that we do have we're destroying all of that but now I've started to look at the world in a creepy way everywhere I go I feel sad sorry I always like to pitch positivity but I do I look at buildings skyscrapers cranes motorways and just think when are we going to stop it eating up mm-hmm. everything that's natural I mean I find it honestly it's my biggest fascination of life it's that idea of anthropology and how we've curated man's world and how we believe we're superior. It's just absolutely insane. It just fascinates me. And for me, fashion is, it's not sustainable fashion and fashion. For me, fashion is just my outlets, my medium. And I can talk about my, you know, my ethos and my beliefs through that medium, you know, because it's not clothes for clothes sake. It's not even about the clothes. It's about the meaning behind it and what you're saying. Do you, you know? care if you if they're wearable? Do you care if they're saleable? At that time, when I did my BA, it wasn't something that I was thinking about. I mean, I worked in retail actually since I was about 14. So that just naturally is in the back of my mind. But bringing the work together with that at that time was not what my main intention was. It was to... You know, we closed the show in 2017, the BA show at St. Martin. So I wanted people to look at this thing and see like, okay, what is this? Like, and know that it was made of trash, you know? So it was a very obvious way of showcasing it, you know? Can we unpick a bit more detail as to what materials you used and how in that collection? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny because they all have funny stories, but there's like the one thing when I tell people, they just find it hilarious how there's a jacket it's like a red and black jacket and it's reflective actually, but it's made of an upcycled 
granny trolley you know like there's shopping trolleys like a wheelie just, one yeah it was just lying in the studio at St Martin's for like weeks and I was like who's this, this trolley who's this trolley no one wanted it Brenda's so, been around with a pot pie and a trolley yeah she left a trolley there so I just took Brenda's trolley and I cut it up and um, I used every piece actually well I had, it was quite small so yeah and upcycled it into the jacket so it's some of the pieces weren't even meant to look like it and it was just meant to look like garments so it's a bit of experimenting here and there but some of them have different ways of wearing. I was very, I mean, my knowledge of this area has progressed so much since I've known Ursula and, you know, met a lot of people in the fashion industry. Like I met Catherine Hamner, which is incredible. And so at that time, it's a bit naive and it's matured a lot now. Or well, what about the politics of it? When I look at the work that you're doing, I think it's a really clear kind of call to arms. I think it's just a way of, a different way of thinking because there's no one set path and it's not like a, the rule book. There's not like a you know a guidebook to this. So we're all in it, experimenting different things. Like I know you spoke to Bethany. Bethany's a really good friend of mine as well. And she, like what she does, and she adds back to the community is incredible. And that works really well for her. And then for me, it's something different. And for someone else, it'd be something different. You know. So it might be bioscience you're looking into. It might be recycled fabrics. It might be upcycling. Like you have to sort of set. And people will always criticise you if you're doing anything to do with this area. You know. Oh, you use electricity in your machines and you know, all of this stuff. Do you drink water? Like, you know, you breathe, breathe, exactly. And so it's, you know, you have to set your own ethos. Right. I think um, it's very easy to criticise when you're doing nothing. How would you like to see fashion change as a system? Transparency is extremely important. And I think it's started to become more and more open and it still needs to. Like there's so many, if you're talking about sustainability as a whole, there are so many different problems not just the environmental problems but also the treatment of workers you know the pay it's just such a messed up system we've created this awful beast that it will fall at one point and then it will rebuild itself and then it's up to us it's up to us to reshape it nothing ever changes throughout history without some sort of revolution being in london as a young creative at this moment in time like every revolution throughout history has been started by a group of young people you know you need to influence other people and set an example and set a standard you know these big brands they won't change unless we will do it and i'm not saying i'm doing it for them but they do have a lot of impact they have a lot of money so if they see that something's working well then they'll copy that you know Congratulations on receiving your scholarships. Thank you so from, much. Are there two separate ones from BFC and then from Caring? Yeah, so the Caring one is through the BFC, but it's um, the British Fashion Council supporting me with my fees, university, which they did on my BA as well. I'm very grateful for that. And the Caring Sustainability Scholarship, I believe it's a new scholarship, but yeah, it's split between me and another student at my university. Who is? Uh, Paolo Carzana. Do you have an ambition to go work for a big house and to steer a big house towards this stuff as creative director or do you think that you want to build your own label i have had people offer me jobs since i graduated at big houses in france i won't say who i've turned them down my mum doesn't really understand that but i've turned them down because i just i felt that i literally couldn't do it there and i've been there and it's like it's you don't have that kind of power there i'm with your mama it's bold to turn it down i think it's it's yeah i'm not saying i don't agree but i think it's definitely brave if you believe in something like you have to make it work if you think you're here for a reason and you have to change the world in some way then you have to do what you have to do to be able to change it because if you all work in big companies nothing ever is going to change now let's hear from patrick mcdowell These days, he has an emerging sustainable label. He's dressed Rita Aura and MIA, and I actually saw a picture of Lady Gaga with one of his bags. 
It was Patrick McDowell's shirt that graced the cover of LUK's sustainability issue last year. While he was studying at St Martin's, he interned at Burberry, and that's where he became quite obsessed with fashion waste. With his own label, he's rethinking the whole system, from repurposing dead stock to considering the climate impacts of his production. Patrick McDowell, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Hello, thank you. We're actually in your house in Hoxton, Mm -hmm. but we met when we were at my book lunch in The Conduit. However, I stalked you on Instagram (laughs) (laughs) because I love the way that you embed sustainability into your practice. What motivates you? Primarily making beautiful things that make me happy to look at. And I think as a designer, it's really lucky to be able to have an extra layer of beauty in your work by knowing that it's not been made in a harmful way. So it just makes it even more of a beautiful product. And I something I've found a lot, especially this year, when I, even if I buy something that I know is a sustainable product or whatever you just it just has an extra level of like nice feeling about it and yeah it's interesting that you bring it back to beauty because I think that's obviously something that motivates designers I mean aesthetics is the first port of call if it Mm -hmm. looks bad no one cares right (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) but then you're seeing beauty in its credentials yeah of course and I think that way as well when you're designing designing at the end of the day is like a problem solving exercise and it it gives you something else to solve so I don't see why people don't do it. You know, I get quite frustrated sometimes because people aren't doing it because it's not actually that difficult. Really? I don't think so. I just think it's just, a, you just have to approach it in a different way. But I think it's, I don't see it as something that's difficult. So I don't understand why, especially the bigger companies, sometimes it makes me frustrated that they're not doing more about it because they've got the cash behind them to really make it work. Practically speaking, how do you apply that into your work? So for my graduate collection, I used fabrics that would have been burnt otherwise. Because when I was, I did an internship year and ended up spending the whole time at Burberry and was noticing, this is before the article came out about Burberry that everyone's now seen. And since then, they've got a bit better. But before then, I'd noticed even just in the studio how much they wasted. You actually saw it firsthand. Yeah, but only... Not kind of how much it was being wasted in the factories and things, but just even in the studio and kind of people's approach and speaking to my friends that were interning at different companies. And it was kind of a similar thing. Everyone was just shocked at how much was being wasted in every design house that they were working in. It's a common refrain. Matthew Needham also mentioned a similar feeling when he was interning somewhere in Paris. Yeah. That you're just surprised to see Mm -hmm. the systems. Yeah. See fabric that's put to rest in a warehouse. Yeah. So you were at St. Martin's when you undertook that internship. Yes. Did it motivate you to then think that you wanted to do things differently in your work? Or did that kind of percolate and come later? How, how did yeah. it all fit together? I've always come from a place of finding ways around financial barriers to find resources. So I've never... Well, thriftiness out of necessity. Yeah. And like most things, they usually come from necessity and they couldn't waste stuff because I didn't have the money to do it and the initial reason for asking which actually in the end it was Christopher Bailey that agreed to give me the fabric. Christopher Bailey who is for many years a creative director of Burberry and so what they gave you fabric that you could use in your graduate collection? Yeah and they did because I noticed that a lot of the things that they weren't using were being burnt. But how did you know? Because it's common knowledge, you know, like all the designers know that that happens. And basically the issue is 
and this is the reason why fabric is wasted is because the fashion system is too quick. So to get fabric physically woven in time for the show, you actually have to order that fabric before you've designed anything because you need that time for them to actually make the fabric because everyone's obsessed with having complete exclusives and special weaves and all this other stuff and certain colors and special colors. So it all has to be pre-planned, which means you have to guess. So obviously you don't know what you're actually going to do. So And this is just doing sampling. This is just, yeah, this is just sampling for one show, which has a hundred looks. So, and just to hang on, let's take a moment to consider how many fashion week shows there are yeah. during fashion month. Yeah. I mean, we'll share some links, but it's hundreds. Yeah. And if you think that each show has 100 looks, which probably means it's about 500 items, which probably means they actually made about 2,000 items, which probably means they actually ordered 4,000 types of fabric, possibly. Gosh. And the fabric that's... I just don't think we think about this. I don't think I even knew that. Yeah. It's crazy because... They use, I think it's about 30% of the fabric that they order for sampling. And the fabric I used for my collection was old sampling meters. But you think that problem then exists in production too. Mm. So instead of like five or 10 meters of each fabric, it's five or 10,000 meters of each fabric. I think that listeners will be saying, but why don't they? And of course, some of them do. And we're not talking particularly about one company here. We're talking about the whole system. But why don't they unsell it? Why mm-hmm. don't they store it and use it later? Yeah, I so mean, Victor and Rolf have been plundering their couture fabric archives, in inverted commas, dead stock, mm-hmm. and then reusing it reusing in new it. collections. But it's not common. No. There is also a thing, you know, like all these companies also still have a team of people that deals with their fabric and how much they have and will kind of bring things back in if they know that it's something that they can use or, or things. But at the end of the day, most of us in design especially... I'm going to use the word older generation because it does really feel like that at the moment. And it's not an age thing. No, but I think it's absolutely valid to talk about a generational shift. Yeah. I'm not offended. No, 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 (laughs) but it's not even because, for example, I see you as a new generation of people that, you know, it's about the way you think now. I I don't think it's about age. I agree. How Um, old are you? 23. I think that sometimes that's driven by wanting newness all the time. And not being happy to sit with something that's maybe actually just nice. And why can't you, like I'm going to do for my second collection, continue. I'm going to have a dress that was in the first one, in the second one, because I like the dress. It was based off a dress my mom has. I have a huge connection with that dress. It's a really special thing for me. And I'm perfectly happy to have that in another really small collection. And it will be a feature of it again. And people will notice that it's the same, but that's fine. It should be commonplace to hear that kind of idea Mm -hmm. but it really isn't no I mean I just I don't understand why for example it's got to the point where pre-collections are 100 looks you know I just think why does a show need to be when it gets to over 100 I'm just like this is just silly now because it's just by the 20th look you're like okay Mm. seen it and in a way you know I do guess it because if you want to be profitable as a company that the problem with fabric that I mentioned about overordering because you don't know what you're going to design and use is the same thing with the buyers because you don't know what the buyers want. So you offer them 40 because they're only going to buy nine. And that's been said to me as well. It's, it's like, well, it's too small for mm-hmm. us to buy. To choose from. I know this stuff, but when you actually spell it out, 
like that yeah it's shocking isn't it yeah it's just so inefficient and it so is, wasteful yeah. but i mean it's that's the thing with me now it's like if i want to be in certain stores i need to have at least 50 pieces in my collection for them to buy from it because if they want to buy one style of trouser they want to see 10 and if they want to buy one top they want to see 10 because they're so spoiled with choice mm. and instead of just looking at something for what it is and being like actually that is a really nice top or that's a really nice jacket and that's okay that I'm just being shown one or two jackets or tops and I can just say okay I will commit to buying that and yes it's slightly more expensive because it's made in England in London and it's designed here and the fabric is good or it comes from a good place so yes it is slightly more expensive but it's also a really nice piece that you can keep forever well it's asking people to rethink the systems that they've been operating Mm -hmm. under for a long time including buyers exactly which is bringing me on to my next thing which is now I'm working with a company called Hire Studio, Hire is in Reach Hire, which is a kind of new age um, fashion rental. Yeah, you mentioned this to me the other day. Can you tell us how that works? Yeah, so the lady that runs it, Sarah, is amazing and she works with a few different designers now. And it's really great because you can either rent a piece from the website and have it for as long as you need and pay accordingly. Or you can subscribe to their website where you pay a certain amount each month and you get three pieces every month and you can swap them in and out as much as you want, but you always have three. How does that work for a designer though? Does it mean that you're selling less volume? Is it not as financially lucrative? I suppose it's not as financially lucrative, but this is also why it's great for me because I've just started because, you know, I had meetings with huge stores in London and like global stores and was told they, it was too small mm. or it's not the right time or whatever. And because I've not been used to it, it means that it's not something that yeah. I've thought about, but I don't see why. And as it is in fashion now, the secondhand and rental market is rising. Every time they do statistics on it, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So maybe in five years, me renting three samples of one style will earn as much money as... Yep. And it's also exciting because we are moving towards or trying to, I think it's still in its early stages, an idea of access over ownership. It was Mm -hmm. one of the things that was mentioned in the Business of Fashion McKinsey's State of Fashion 2019 report. You know, they come up with 10 things that are shaping global fashion. Yeah. That was one of them. We know we're going that way. So you can be the change in that way. Yeah. And I also think, you know, this also satisfies the need for newness and having new things. I read an article about these people that are ordering things from Netta Porter, taking a picture of them, of themselves wearing it and sending it back. Yep. I read that too. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Patrick, I want to just rewind and ask you where you began. You're from Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Where does you, you mentioned a dress that your mum had that inspired yeah. you. Tell me about your early fashion life. Yeah, so I was born in a place called the Wirral, which is a, like a suburb of Liverpool. And anyone that's got any relationship to the north of England will appreciate the way fashion changes, especially women there, as they prepare for a night out or just drinks with their friends or, you know, any... It was always any event there, even just like dinner with the family. My mum would always get dressed up. And I think that's just a thing, especially that happens in the North, that you, people generally, I think, have slightly less, so they make more of it. And especially like 
real Liverpool is like the peacock, you know, like it's like the big hair, like how the longest dress or the shortest dress or the highest shoes or, you know, like the, the most fake tan and long nails. Like, but I think just seeing that ability to like transform someone and watch someone change, mm. watch the way they hold themselves change, watch the way they approach people change, like the way you can gain confidence or gain happiness or just seeing these really strong women because Liverpool women are strong really just like come into themselves just through fabric on their bodies I just I just remember seeing it as a child and just being like in awe of it and just seeing how incredible to maybe be part of this feeling and we all know what that's like we've all got certain things that we put on and we feel like so strong and powerful or happy so when did you decide you want to make clothes when I was eight, I started selling these cards that I was making because the teacher at the time was really supportive of creativity, which has been a thing throughout my whole education, actually, that I've had these really important teachers that have encouraged it. So I used to make cards out of leftover pieces of paper when I was eight and sell them for like 50p. And then when I was 13, my mum wouldn't buy me a new school bag and I really wanted one. So the first fashion thing I ever made was a bag out of an old pair of jeans because I was that kind of child that was like well if you won't buy me one I'll make one so I went upstairs chopped up a pair of jeans and made it into a bag which is the first thing I ever had and then showing that to the head of our my secondary school Ali McGuart and she was like amazing you come back after school we'll work on it together let's do something else let's make a dress start selling things and that's when I started making bags for life which at the time had just started so I made huge ones that you could actually shop with because remember when they first came out and you could fit about two cucumbers in it or something and that was it (laughs) so I made these huge canvas ones out of remnant meters of canvas in these really strange prints 13 and then three years later you run the apprentice (laughs) yeah again selling still selling bags but they'd gone into like evening wear but they were still made from like remnants um satin stuff because it was cheaper than buying new rolls yeah and then I went to St Martin's could you describe yourself as a teenager? What do you look like? Like, were you addressing... Did you have an identity that you shrugged on and off? When I was playing the fashion bitch, I used to dress like Carl Lagerfeld. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't like, expecting really, that like, one. Completely. <laughs> what, like the high collar? High collar, a black tie, like a blazer, skinny trousers, and lots of silver jewellery that was You like, were channeling really Carl fake. on purpose. Yeah, and when my fingers went green from those horrible, like, fake metal rings... <laughs> But I've always been really interested in, you know, there was a phase at St. Martin's where I wore huge high heels and loads of makeup and big kimonos and, you know, like huge earrings. And then there was a phase where I kind of looked like someone from Desperate Housewives. And, you know, like this, I've always enjoyed this, like, changing. It's also playful, isn't it? Like, you can play. I've always loved that too. And I think in the sustainability conversation, I'm actually sitting here in a sweatshirt and jeans as well. But in the sustainability conversation, we can often forget the reason why so many people in fashion were attracted to it in the first place. Mm-hmm. For me, it was to be as eccentric as possible, to yeah. look as decked out as I could. And I still love that. Yeah. But often when we do drill down into the kind of big environmental or social issues of sustainability, it seems to then link so often to like this aesthetic minimalism thing, which is just like purity mm-hmm. I don't know beige mm-hmm. which is often <laughs> which I'm never into I'd rather be in the heels yeah, and pearls yeah yeah which it can be like my pineal collection was like full of colour full of volume like 
slightly too much. Like, I'm happy to be the person that's slightly too much. And I think people were excited, but I think that's why it was received well by the press, which it doesn't compromise on being beautiful or just being... I mean, I don't think that you should ever use sustainability as a way to compromise the fact that you haven't designed it very well. Because if it's an extra problem to solve, then your design should get better. And I don't think... It should never be an excuse. It should only be an aid to make it nicer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's so much work to do. So much. My final question is, what do you hope to do with it? Like, where do you see your label going? And mm. what are your hopes for a... I don't even want to use the word sustainable. Mm. For just a more balanced fashion industry. It's really interesting because I went home at the beginning of September and had a conversation with my really old and great friend, Ellie. And I was saying, you know, maybe the right thing to do is to just not be doing this and she said yeah but the thing is if you don't who is and I think that's really Mm. poignant that if people don't start changing it it's not going to change and you know in the future I just want to see a place where instead of a hundred things on a shop floor there's ten and they're amazing And people are proud to be the person that is a little bit too much or the person that is very minimal or the person that makes everything in green or, you know, like, and everyone has their thing. Like it used to be when you have, you'd have like a shot for a type of hat and a shot for a type of shoe and you own your thing. You do it really well. You make everything really beautifully. It can be rented or it can be borrowed long term or whatever. And that I'm sure will become an economically viable thing at some point. And just see a future where it's just slightly slower and more beautiful because we've got to a stage now where it's lost its beauty a bit I think oh, it's getting hard my parents feel that I'm defending you tell all that they are wrong because I love you thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis to learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today hop on over to my website which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast you can get in touch there and I really hope you will I'd love to hear from you and you can also find links to my social media and finally if you're enjoying the show please head over to iTunes and subscribe you know what they say first in best dressed subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you